0: Last time we spoke about Operation Sego and the continued drive upon Fishhafen. The evacuation of Kolombangera, designated Operation Sego, showcased how the Japanese were becoming experts at large scale evacuations. Nearly 10,000 men were safely evacuated from Kolombangera at the cost of some barges. Then in New Guinea, the Allies became aware the taking of Fishhafen was not going to be a cakewalk after all. In fact, Woon sent word to the other commanders that he believed he was facing the full 20th Division at Finchaffen. The other commanders were sending their men through the Ramu and Markham valleys, finding rearguards everywhere that they looked. Rivers and ridges were being taken at a quick pace, and Finchaffen was technically seized, but certainly not secured. Now the Allies would have to attack the stronghold of Saddleberg. And for today, we are going to see action both upon land and sea. This episode is the naval battle of Vela Lavella. Welcome back to the Pacific War Podcast week by week, and I'm your dutiful host, Greg Watson. But before we can begin, I just want to remind you all that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of kings and generals over at YouTube. Perhaps you want to learn a bit more about World War II? Kings and Generals has an assortment of episodes on World War II and so much more. So go give them a look over at YouTube. So please subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash Generals. And hey, don't forget about our sister podcast over at the Age of Conquest, the Fall and Rise of China podcast, written and narrated by me. And if after all that, you are still hungry for some more history, why don't you check out my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel over at YouTube. Over there, I just released a podcast where I interviewed Chuck Myers on the USS Hornet. Also, don't forget to check out my Patreon account at www.patreon.com slash the Pacific War Channel. Over there, I have exclusive podcasts, such as my latest piece on Tomiyuki Yamashita and how he became the Tiger of Malaya the Japanese had accomplished another outstanding evacuation, managing to pull out nearly 10,000 men from the marooned and isolated island of Kolombangara. They managed this with limited craft and boldly under the nose of the enemy who enjoyed superiority over land, air, and sea. Yet as you can imagine, this certainly showcases how the tide of war in the South Pacific had decisively turned. Japanese naval operations were becoming increasingly concerned with evacuating troops as their positions grew hopeless. The campaign for the Central Solomons was falling apart for Japan. The invasion of Bougainville was imminent. However, because of the evacuation of Columbangera, one of its results would be the establishment of a staging base for barges and landing craft over at Hiranu, the northeast shore of Vella Lavella. Now in the last episode, we spoke about the actions of the Tsura unit and how they were busy delaying Brigadier Potter's New Zealander forces. The Japanese had their backs against the wall at Murakana Bay, holding by just a thread. They had little food or ammunition left with no possibility of resupply or reinforcements. Despite insufficient resources, Admiral Samajima was determined to rescue the doomed Tsura unit. Semajima managed to convince Admiral Kuzaka to carry out yet again another evacuation, this time of Vela la Vela, slated for the night of October the 6th. Before dawn on the 6th, Admiral Ujin departed Rabaul with nine destroyers divided into three groups. The first group was led personally by Admiral Ujin, consisting of the Akigumo, Izokaze, Kazugumo, and the Yagumo. The second group was led by Captain Kanuka Kunizo who was aboard the Fumizuki, accompanied by the Unagi and Matsukaze, and a transport unit of six barges. He also had 30 folding boats and a transport named the Uzakumaru. The third group was led by Captain Hara Tamichi, aboard the Shigure and Samidare as backup. There was to be a fourth group, led by Commander Nakayama Shigorioku, consisting of 5 subchasers, three vedettes, and a barge that would depart Boon to help. Ijun was to be the strike unit, Kanoka, the transport unit, and Hada the guard unit. Ijun planned to have Kanoka and Hada standing off Markana Bay, supported by the incoming fourth unit, led by Shigeroku. Further support would be given in the form of eight float planes that would try to bomb Potter's men with 20 Zeros providing air cover. During the morning of the 6th, Admiral Wilkinson received reports the Japanese might be attempting an evacuation of Choisel. At the same time, his 10th echelon was underway transporting the IMAC advance base to Vella La Vella, leaving the only available force being Captain Frank Walker with destroyers Selfridge, Chevalier, and O'Bannon. Walker was just returning from a run up the slot passing by the Russells on his way home. Wilkinson sent word to Walker to pay specific attention to the coast of Choiseul as he passed around. During that afternoon, Admiral Halsey sent an alert to Wilkinson that the Tokyo Express was definitely about to make a run, but it was not going to be Choisel. Instead, it was to be Mokwana Bay. Wilkinson dispatched three destroyers from the 10th echelon, Ralph Talbot, Taylor, and La with Commander Harold Larson to reinforce Walker around Sako Point. They were to try and intercept the Japanese. Shortly after sending the orders, Walker received further intelligence at 7:30 p.m., he learned that an unknown number of destroyers, three torpedo boats, and six subchasers were en route, expected to be in the area by 10:30, with an embarkation time of 11:30. At 9:02, he was told that possibly nine destroyers were coming. A few minutes later, another report passed on by some B-25s attacking Wuhan stated they had spotted four IJN destroyers or possibly Jinsu class cruisers. Thus. Pretty uncertain of what was actually out there, Walker's crews were warned to expect the worse, and they would sound general quarters by 7 p.m. Forty minutes later, the 938th Seaplanes began harassing them. At 9.50, Walker announced over the TBS, "'When we round the corner, close the gap, and be ready for anything. I want to get the fish off without guns, if possible.'" Wilkinson's reinforcements only made it to the rendezvous point at about 11.40, leaving Walker to have to start the battle on his own. Since the days of John Paul Jones, American naval lore had honored and applauded commanders who unleashed bold attacks on superior enemy forces. But in this case, Walker would prove to be too rash. Walker took his force around the north coast of Vella Lavella that night and began scouting the area, finding no sign of the enemy. Meanwhile, Ijun's strike force followed by Hara and Kanoka proceeded to their staging point and they arrived at around 10 p.m. Minutes later, a scout plane reported four cruisers and three destroyers northeast of Vela Lavella on a western course. The plane most certainly saw the Selfridge, Chevalier, and O'Bannon coming up the slot but mistook them to be cruisers. Ijun ordered Kanoka to take his group west towards the shortlands while he and Hara turned back to meet the enemy. However, Harrow’s force was a bit further west and having difficulty due to mist, causing a lack of visibility. At 10:30 the Americans made their first radar contact of the enemy, and five minutes later lookouts aboard the Kasigumo sighted the Americans just to their south. Consequently, Ijun had turned to port heading southwest to cross Walker’s bows. but he misjudged the distance and instead opened the range. Walker responded by increasing his force’s speed to 30 knots to try and head off the enemy. Upon seeing this, Idjun changed his course at 10.45 to south-southeast to close in the range. Then at 10.48 he ordered a 45 degree turn to south. These maneuvers actually worked to the American's advantage, and upon seeing he was presenting an easier target, Idjun ordered another simultaneous turn to port, which staggered his ships in line abreast on a course opposite and nearly parallel to Walker, with the range rapidly closing. The maneuvering blunder allowed the Americans to pull up to the nearest group of four IGN destroyers and to launch half a salvo of torpedoes. Most of the torpedoes were fired at the Yagumo, which had been mistaken as a possible cruiser. Commander Osaka Higashi aboard the Yagumo ordered eight torpedoes to be launched before the guns began to fire. The Americans opened fire with their guns after the torpedoes, turning Yagumo into a burning wreck quickly. Ijun tried to course-correct yet again, going south and then west. However, by this point, Hara had just made it to the battle at 11.01, and the Americans saw his forces to their southwest, so they closed in to engage. This put Hara ahead and parallel to Walker, giving the Americans the perfect position to launch another salvo of torpedoes. At the same time, one of Yagumo's torpedoes hit Chevalier, detonating her number two gun magazine, blowing the ship in two. Her brigade and aft section swung across O'Bannon's path, forcing O'Bannon to ram into her starboard engine room. The force of the collision was mitigated by Commander Donald MacDonald, who ordered an emergency full speed astern when he saw the explosion on Chevalier. Two minutes later, a torpedo most likely fired from Chevalier hit Yagumo. At 11.07, one of Harrow's destroyers landed a torpedo hit on the selfridge, shearing off her bow and wrecking everything from the bridge forward. In just five minutes, 104 American sailors were dead, and 66 were wounded. Both sides continued the brawl, and at 11.17, Ijun taking a westward course, ordered torpedoes to be fired at what he thought were cruisers, probably the O'Bannon and Chevalier. He received a claim that one was sunk, so he decided to break off the battle and head for home. Meanwhile, George Peckham aboard the Selfridge believed he had just been hit by torpedo boats and wildly ordered men to track where they might be. It was an age-old naval case of both sides fighting ghost ships, basically. Meanwhile, Commander Nakayama's group began to approach Maquana Bay from the north, and Wilkinson's reinforcements group, led by Larson, were arriving from the south as well. At 10.55, Larson had received orders from Walker to execute William, which was the codename for torpedoes, and DOG was naval gunfire. Larson's group passed Yagumo, who was undergoing her death throes, and by 11.40, the group was in the battle area. Larson could not make out contact on enemy ships, and by midnight simply headed for Maquana Bay, seeing nothing but crippled ships. Chevalier was beyond saving, so she had to be scuttled. Selfridge was able to be repaired by 3.15 a.m. and would make a slow but safe journey home. Walker notified commercials they needed air cover as Nakayama's group passed east of the battle area but did not engage. Japanese barges began to load men as the 938th float planes harassed the New Zealanders' artillery. Many New Zealanders reported hearing naval gunfire and what sounded like barges scraping against reefs. By 3.10am, Nakayama had left for Boon with all 589 men of the Tsura unit. The Americans captured 74 survivors of the Yagumo, who were marooned on Biloa, while 27 others would make their way to Bun using motorized whaleboats. boats. Ijun had lost 179 men, dead, with 74 captured. On October the 8th, Potter's men determined the Japanese were indeed gone, so they began occupying Mokwana Bay. And thus this ended the Battle of Vela Lavella. The 1st Battalion, 27th Regiment, landed at Ringi Cove on southern Columbangar on October the sixth, finding forty nine abandoned artillery pieces and some scattered Japanese who had been left behind. By October the fifteenth, Admiral Halsey declared Operation Toenails terminated. Two days prior, the Japanese had likewise terminated Operation Sago. Admiral Samajima would be forced to carry the blame for the loss of the Central Solomons. He would go on the record to say this. The relations between the Army and Navy units in this area were extremely harmonious and satisfactory, and the foregoing is due to the character and judgment of Major General Sasaki and Rear Admiral Ota. However, because of my inexperience in commanding land operations, there were times when I failed to dispatch appropriate orders to Major General Sasaki in conducting our operations. And the fact that there is evidence that I left the operations up to the arbitrary decisions of Major General Sasaki, to some degree clearly reveals the folly of placing a naval commander like me in charge of land operations involving army and naval units. In the end, his forces managed to hold back the enemy for nearly two months, and he had pulled off a pretty incredible evacuation. Operation Toenails was a success for the Allies, managing to secure four new air bases at Munda, Segi, Andonga, and Barakoma. These acquisitions would have a huge impact on future campaigns against Bougainville and Rabaul. Admiral Halsey would receive some criticism for underestimating both the terrain and the enemy during Operation Toenails. Major General Harmon went on the record to say, Munda is a tough nut. Much tougher in terrain and organization of the ground and determination of the Jap than we had previously thought. The Japanese agreed. An intelligence report dated August the 11th stated this. Reasons for the slow advance of the enemy in Munda, etc. are due to the courage of our forces and the difficult fighting in the jungle. The Allies learned some important lessons, such as the necessity of adequate medical support, the implementation of effective evacuation procedures, close air support for ground troops, the effectiveness of naval gunfire support or lack thereof it, and the three most effective weapons against the Japanese were the 155mm gun, tanks, and dive bombers. These three weapons would be put into effect on Bougainville. The Central Solomon's campaign saw 995 U.S. Army, 192 Marine, and 500 U.S. Naval deaths, with 4,407 wounded. The New Zealanders and Fijians received 200 casualties. For the Japanese, it was estimated 4,000 or so died, with another 4,500 wounded. And now we have to head over to New Guinea. General Vasey's men were preparing for an assault against Dumpu while being harassed by the infiltration specialists of the Sato unit. The Sato units had performed infiltrations against Dakisaria and Maroasa. On October the 2nd, while the bulk of the 21st and 25th brigades were establishing bridgeheads to cross the Gusap and Tukat River, the 2 and 7th Independent Company at this time were trying to cross the Ramu into Kagulin, where a Japanese outpost was. The outpost was guarded by the Sato unit. 80 men of the 10th Company, 78th Regiment, supported by the 3rd Company. The Sedo unit gave them hell, forcing the commandos to cross the Ramu elsewhere, trying to hook around their right flank. They managed to pull the flanking maneuver, and in the battle killed six Japanese. Interestingly, Lt. R.D. Watts decapitated a Japanese using a katana he had acquired in a previous battle. Kind of a case of the turntables. I am now realizing, having almost done, what, a hundred episodes, that every time I make that really stupid joke, there's probably many of you who have never watched the show The Office and have no idea why I'm saying that. The following day, Brigadier Doherty ordered his men to only patrol as he was waiting for Brigadier Ether's forces to assemble in the Bum Bum area. Yes, uh, there is a place called Bum Bum. I thought Nook Nook would be my favorite place in New Guinea, and I was wrong. On the morning of October the 4th, Doherty ordered the 2-and-14th towards Wampun and the 2-and-16th to capture Dampu. By 2 p.m., Captain C.L. McKinney's led a company of the 2-and-14th to find Wampun deserted, which was expected. However, the men had marched all day, in the heat, without any water. McKinney's company was sent to Karam to search for water. Another company followed McKinney's company soon after, and after a mile or so, they came across a banana plantation. They saw some troops cutting down banana leaves and assumed it was McKinney's men. However, these were actually Japanese of the Seto unit. The four patrol were careless advancing towards the banana plantation when bursts of machine gun and rifle fire hit Colonel Honer and Sergeant Pryor. Pryor wounded in his chin and chest tried to drag his commanding officer back, but Honer had taken a shot to the leg and could only crawl. Honer began screaming to his men to figure out the position of the enemy, and this led Private Bennett to lead a small party to do so. The Japanese continued to fire upon them, and Honer was hit in his hand, adding to his misery. Luckily for them, the two and 14th sent a rescue party to extract Honer. Honer was gradually moved to safety by 5 p.m. as Colonel O'Day prepared to attack the Japanese at the Banana Plantation. At 6 p.m., O'Day led two platoons to rush their position where they killed 11 troops and a Japanese officer, driving the rest to flee into the jungle. The next morning, they would also kill a few stragglers. The action cost seven Australian lives of the 2 and 14th, while killing an estimated 26 Japanese and taking a single prisoner. Meanwhile, the 2 and 16th had successfully crossed the Suriname River without facing any opposition. They sent a platoon ahead led by Lieutenant Scott to check out Dampu. At 4.40 p.m., he reported back that it seemed Dunpu was still occupied. Major Simmington led forward a company to prepare for an attack on Dunpu, But when they reached its outskirts, they could visibly see Japanese fleeing the area. Thus Doherty's men grabbed Dunpu without a fight. General Vesey believed the 78th Regiment had failed to relieve pressure on the retreating 51st Division. But unbeknownst to him, General Nakano's men were already marching through the formidable Surawagd Range. The range had an altitude of 3,000 meters where temperatures would fall below 10 degrees. Anyone who tried to start a fire from the moss-covered wood would find it unbelievably difficult. Many men reported heating gunpowder from rifles to start fires. A lot of rifles were burnt away because of this. Their rations ran out quite quickly leading to starving men turning upon the dead, and even the living. Private Kitamoto Masamichi recalled this. Seeing three soldiers had pinned a trooper to the ground while one of them stabbed him in the heart with his bayonet. I watched, shocked, as the remaining three soldiers cut slices of the dead trooper's thigh and began to devour the human flesh. I shouted at them as flies swarmed about their faces. They had become mad with hunger and fatigue. Kitamoto covered the corpse, and they all moved on. Cannibalism reared its ugly head often for the Japanese, particularly in some parts of Burma by late 1945. Until now, the 7th Division was enjoying a pretty uninterrupted advance to Dampu. Banabena was pretty secure as well, but General Nakai was establishing strong defensive positions along the Kankiri Saddle. This would soon turn the campaign in the Ramu Valley and Finestri Range into a gritty holding operation. In the meantime, the Allies were being directed towards the Finchaffen campaign, with General Herring ordering Vasey to hold the Dampu Marawasa area. There he was to establish a new landing strip at Dampu and to not make any more large advances. Only the 2 and 27th Battalion of Lieutenant Colonel John Bishop would be allowed to advance into the Finistri foothills. Doherty hoped the 2 and 27th might reach Kambarum, within the Finistri foothills, and during a torrential rainstorm, they overran the area with no opposition. Bishop's men patrolled around and found the enemy was occupying the key feature guarding the exits of the Faria and Uriah rivers, with some mountains northwest of Kambarum. Under the cover of rain... Lt. King took eight men to scramble up the feature which panicked the Japanese, causing them all to flee without a fight. Thus it was named King's Hill and would become an important tactical position and observation post. Apparently King's men had come up just when two battalions were changing their troops' dispositions, and a platoon guarding King's Hill had retired before even seeing the Allied forces. Regardless, a company was sent to the Bogdanen Mountain area that rose some 41,000 feet. The torrential rain caused a ton of delays for the construction of the new landing strip. In the meantime, the 21st Brigade patrolled as much as they possibly could. The 2nd 16th and the 2nd 14th patrolled west of the Mosia River, finding none of the enemy. On the 6th, the 25th Brigade sent patrols in all directions north of the Ramu Valley. They found signs of the enemy recently leaving the Bopa Rumpum area, the same at Koram. Just a bit north of Koram, it looked like there was a Japanese outpost on some high ground. Patrols took care near this outpost as it was expected Japanese snipers were there. But when further prodded, it seemed abandoned. The two and second independent company patrolled the area of Sipu towards the Wamarimba crossing of the Ramu finding, only signs the enemy had recently vacated the area. A small patrol skirmished with the enemy between Saos and Yusini. Kisawa would be found unoccupied on the 5th. Overall, it was concluded the Japanese had abandoned the Ramu Valley entirely. On the 6th, Generals Vesey and Wooten received a signal that the 2nd 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 4th and 2nd 6th and the 2nd 7th independent companies would become cavalry commando squadrons, which did not sit well with the experienced commandos. Since the beginning of 1943, the term commando had been increasingly used to describe a member of an independent company. The term was quite alien to the Australian Army, and the tasks undertaken by independent companies since the beginning of the Pacific War were not at all like what British commandos did. In a short space of two years, the independent companies had built up a proud tradition, and the men regarded the term independent company as a much better description of what they did, rather than the terms commando or cavalry, and thus resented the change of title. The next day, Doherty's 2 and 16th Battalion occupied Bay Bay, and the 2 and 27th Battalion consciously investigated the upper reaches of the Uria and Friar River valleys. When the men went past the Friar River towards some high ground, they suddenly came across a party of eight Japanese. A fight broke out as they killed three out of the eight Japanese, receiving no casualties themselves. The Japanese looked to be withdrawing, and the Australians dug in for the night in a place designated as Guy's Post atop Buff's Knoll. These prodding actions prompted Nakai to order the 2nd Baton 70th Regiment to launch a counterattack against Buff's Knoll. An hour after midnight, during a particularly rainy night, a Japanese platoon charged up the Knoll. The first attack lasted about half an hour before petering out. The Australian company consolidated around Guy's Post, establishing a defensive perimeter throughout the night. However, the night attack ultimately failed for the Japanese as they were not familiar with the terrain, and the heavy rain made a mess of their advance. On the morning of October the 8th, the Japanese tried to push again while the 2 and 27th consolidated their position in the Friar area. The Japanese barely budged the Australians and on October the 9th, Colonel Bishop ordered the company to advance forward astride the main Japanese route, going east towards the Kankuro Saddle. The men over at Guy's Post followed them an hour or so behind as they skirmished with the Japanese towards Trevor's Ridge and John Snow. They would kill roughly 11 Japanese as they occupied both Trevor's Ridge and John Snow. But that is all we have for today on New Guinea, as we're going to be traveling back to the CBI Theater, which honestly we haven't talked about in some time. Going way back to 1942, the Japanese Empire was at its zenith, forcing the Allies to come up with some special operations, such as the Jindits. Our old onion necklace-wearing friend, Brigadier Wingate, was running that show. But General Blamey also created his Inter-Allied Services Department, known as the ISD. They were a military intelligence unit formed around several British special operations officers who had escaped Singapore before it fell. Inside the ISD, later named the Services Reconnaissance Department, a raiding commando unit was formed called the Z Special Unit. They were primarily Australian, but also had some British, Dutch, New Zealander, Timorese, and Indonesia members. After escaping places like Singapore and Sumatra, British captain Ivan Leon joined the unit and became one of their leaders. He devised a plan to attack the Japanese shipping in Singapore's harbour. His plan was designated Operation Jaywick. It called for traversing over to the harbour in a vessel disguised as an Asian fishing boat. They were then to use full boats or folding canoes to go over to the enemy ships and attach limpet mines to them. Leon was promoted to major and he began rigorous training of 17 volunteers at Camp X. This was a clifftop overlooking Refuge Bay to the north of Sydney. The men worked for weeks, digging, breaking rock, and clearing scrub around the campsite and parade ground, which worked as a prelude to the long and progressively longer days they would be spending canoeing. There were plenty of route marches across rocky hills, which Leon said, consisted of point-to-point walking or scrambling, compass work, stalking, and attacks. The men were tested on elementary navigation, chart reading, tide tables, visual signaling with semaphore and morse, and the use of prismatic compasses on land and sea. They trained using a variety of weapons, such as the Owen submachine gun, Brens, Lewis guns, all in the view to shoot down enemy aircraft. They practiced unarmed combat grenade tossing, limpet mining, and gilganite. They also received numerous lectures on ship engines. By early 1943, the 17 men had been reduced to 10. They were then given a captured Japanese coastal fish carrier named the Crate, which was powered by a Dutes four-cylinder engine, it had a beam of 11 feet and a range of 8,000 miles with a max speed of 6.5 knots. They modified the vessel to increase her storage capacity. And on August the 4th, the crate departed Cairns en route to the submarine base at Exmouth Gulf on the northwest corner of Australia. On September the 2nd, Leon's commandos began their long and dangerous voyage sailing through the Longbuck Strait to Singapore. None of the men knew about the plan prior to the attack, nor their destination. It was on the third day that Leon gathered the men to disclose the truth. He said, Righto, do you know where we're going? Some of the men said they believed it was Surabaya in East Java. After Leon revealed their destination, Moss Berryman recalled, They couldn't believe it. When they were told they were going to Singapore to blow up a few ships. Leon could see one or two of the men were stunned at the thought of going so deep inside enemy territory. Jones recalled, Nobody expected to be going that far and there was sort of talk about how dangerous it was. Leon reassured the men that wasn't the case. This is not a dangerous trip. It's an experience. For anyone who didn't fancy it, Leon said he understood, and he would, quote, Drop you off at the first island we come to, and if you're there when we come back, we'll pick you up. It was a rather smart psychological play, as he knew no one would dare lose face in front of his mates. Leon stared at their faces, and they returned his gaze. No one moved. They were all fully committed. Their safety depended on maintaining the disguise of a local fishing boat, so the raiders stained their skin brown with dye to appear more Asiatic. I guess it's sort of like the Prime Minister of my country on Halloween. Cramped on the crate, the commandos reached the Java Sea passing southwest of the corner of Borneo, getting 50 miles of her coast by September the 14th. The enemy's high activity in the area forced Lian to detour towards Panjang Island, with the intention of making their way to Duran Island. Yet when they approached Duran Island, they spotted an observation post, so they turned back to Panjang, which lies approximately 25 miles south of Singapore. On September the 20th, six men on three canoes carrying nine limbit mines each departed the crate en route to Singapore's harbor. The raiders passed through Bulan and the Batam Islands on September the 22nd, reaching the Donas Island the next day. On the 24th, Leon sighted 13 sizable ships in the harbor, so he told the men they would be hitting them that night. Leon distributed cyanide pills to all the men and he told them, I leave it up to yourselves to decide what you want to do, but I can tell you now that if you get caught, you won't have a very good time of it. They're not known for being gentlemen, the Japanese. Don't delude yourselves in thinking you are tough enough to resist interrogation. You could be tortured enough to give away the whole story. You may not be able to do anything about it. Above all, they had to think of their mates on the crate. If they fell in enemy hands, the Japanese would want to know how we arrived in Singapore. The men rode through the capricious tide, but soon they were forced back towards Dongus. Instead, they had to move to the Silver Island the next day. And on the night of September the 26th, Leon's raiders departed again. Canoe 1 held Leon and Huston. Canoe 2, Davidson and Falls. Canoe 3 held Page and Jones. Canoe 2 would hit the North Shipping in Keppel Harbor, while 1 and 3 would hit Examination Anchorage and the wharf at Palo Bocan. Canoe 2 had the strongest men, and thus they were given the additional task of returning to Pongpong to rendezvous with the crate. Canoe 2 steered through an anchorage catch on the edge of the main channel, continuing between the islands of Bakang Matsi and Tukukor. They arrived to Keppel Harbor, and they set their sights on a 6,000-ton cargo ship sitting in low water, indicating that she had a full load. They found a second target, also a 6,000-ton cargo ship, and a third ship of similar proportions, though she did not look fully loaded. At one fifteen a.m., they attached their last of their nine limpet mines, three per ship, and made their escape towards Pantang. The other two canoes had a much easier paddle for Subar. The tide was running east and west, allowing them to go with ease to their target. They paddled together until nine thirty, when they separated. At Pulubokam, an older freighter was mined amidship and around the engine rooms. Then they spotted a more modern freighter, with engines after and three sets of goalpost masts, and another 6,000 ton old freighter. Over in the examination anchorage, nothing suitable was to be found, so the raiders mined a tanker, even though it was probably impossible to sink it with mines. All four ships were mined, and the men ate some chocolate rations and made their escape towards Dongus. The ships combined comprised around 39,000 tons between them. On the way back, the exhausted commandos heard the distant explosions and the chaos that erupted in Singapore. When dawn broke, in examination anchorage, one ship was particularly submerged, while two more would sink and three were heavily damaged, including the tanker Maru. Canoe one and three waited until the commotion died down before returning to Panjang, reuniting with everyone aboard the crate by October the 2nd. Their return back to Australia was relatively uneventful, except for one very tense incident, in the Lombok Strait, when an I.G.N. minesweeper approached their ship. The commandos remained cool, and the minesweeper simply carried on. The Japanese would retaliate for what happened during Operation Jaywick. On October the 10th, the Thai, those are military police of the I.G.A. for those of you who don't know, you can sort of picture them like the Gestapo, but not quite the same. They went to Changi Prison in Singapore and began reading out a list of civilian names. These named men were taken away for interrogation, torture, and in many cases, execution. Over the course of six months, 50 Europeans and Australians suffered a brutal inquisition. They were beaten with knotted ropes, electrically shocked, had nails driven into their feet, had cigarettes burnt over their hands and arms, and even on their genitals. They were waterboarded, and in total, 16 men would die. But no credible information was taken from any of them. The Japanese were far more brutal to the Malays and Chinese, however. Countless were tortured, interrogated, and many were executed, with their severed heads put on posts around the city. After it was all said and done, the Kempeitai filled a report speculating the raid had been carried out by two Chinese and one Malay. They didn't believe it for a second, and their superiors did not either. The six months of horror is known as the Double Tenth Massacre, There was another unit formed known as the M Special Unit, which was a joint Australian, New Zealand, Dutch, and British reconnaissance unit formed as a successor to the Coast Watchers. Their role was to gather intelligence on Japanese shipping and troop movements. To do this, small teams were landed behind enemy lines by sea, air, and land. One of their first operations was called Locust, led by Lieutenant Jack Fryer. A group of four men departed Binabina overland on January 21st and they advanced to Ullumi's airstrip. They formed a base camp there and began observing the Japanese. In conjunction to Locust was Operation Whiting, which was a team of five Dutchmen led by Sergeant Hubert Staverman, who also departed Binabina to establish a coast-watching station in the hills above Hollandia, reaching Ayatape by mid-September. Unfortunately, the operation would be a catastrophe as the Dutch were ambushed around Etape. Sergeant Staverman, Corporal D. J. Topman, Privates Patewal, Reharing, and Radio Operator Sergeant Len Stiflet were publicly executed at Etape Beach on October the twenty-fourth of nineteen forty-three. Another important development was the Japanese seizure of Macau. Unlike the case of Portuguese-held Timor. Taken in 1942, the Japanese had respected Portuguese neutrality in Macau. However, there was a huge influx of Chinese, American, and European refugees coming over from places like Guangdong and Hong Kong. And as you can imagine, this aroused Japanese suspicions. After the fall of Hong Kong, the British had established a clandestine support organization inside Macau, trying to gain intelligence on the Japanese in an effort to rescue the prisoners from Hong Kong. British Army A group known as BAG, was under the command of Lt. Col. Lindsay tasman Ride. They operated out of Hong Kong, Weichao, Guilin, Sambu, Kaiping, Kunming, and other places. They had planned out escape routes from Macau for local Chinese using a route through the Seki, or via the sea, at a place called Tuhuk. Guangzhouan was another escape route that wealthy Chinese and other nationalities with resources could buy passage through as well. There was another route that used a heavily-armored motor junk. It would go northwest of a point of Macau, Kongchung, and took them as far as Samfao. From there, with aid, they could get to Guilin and then Chongqing. But then a blockade was imposed on the Chinese mainland. Macau's survival depended upon receiving rice and fuel from places like Vichy-controlled Indochina and Guangchawan. But after the Japanese occupied them, Macau was suffering from critical food shortages. Macau's ships were not allowed to be used by Portuguese to carry food, and thus, they were dependent on foreign ships. On the night of August 18th, the British ship Cyan, under Portuguese protection, was commandeered by a combined fleet of Japanese and pro-Japanese Chinese-run ships, which illegally entered Macau's inner harbors. There was a shootout leading to 20 dead British sailors, and the Japanese allegedly discovered that the ship was transporting a shipment of illegal weapons to be sold to the NRA. The next morning, Lieutenant General Tanaka Hizakuzu of the 23rd Army ordered troops across the border who clashed briefly with Macau police forces before Lisbon ordered them all to stop resisting. Governor Mauricio Teixeira was forced to collaborate with the Japanese, who starting in September demanded the installation of Japanese advisors or full-blown military occupation. The result was Macau becoming a protectorate. The isolated port city became a center for smuggling and black market activities, which it kind of still is today. I would like to take this time to remind all of you that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. Please go subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash Kings and Generals. And hey, don't forget about our sister podcast over at The Age of Conquest, The Fall and Rise of China podcast. Written and narrated by me. And if after all that, if you are still hungry for some more history, why don't you check out my personal channel, The Pacific War Channel over at YouTube. Please go check out my recent podcast with Chuck Myers. It's about everything USS Hornet and his time being the main historian consultant for the film Midway. You can also check out my Patreon at www.patreon.com slash the Pacific War Channel for exclusive podcasts. This month's exclusive podcast is on Tomiuki Yamashita and how he became the Tiger of Malaya. The battle for Vela la Vela was over. The Japanese had yet again proved themselves experts at the art of evacuation. The battle for Finchaffen was not over by any means, and now the Allies were cautiously proceeding forward lest they repeat any mistakes learnt in Bunagona, Ley, and Salamaua.